0: I'm really thankful to be here this morning. Like I said, I don't do this often. My name's Matt. I'm uh, one of the lay elders here at the church, but uh, this is not my main game to come up here and and to preach, and so um, I'm thankful for the opportunity. So we're going to continue the series today on biblical generosity. So last week, Jeremy kicked off the series talking about our motivations for being a generous people, right? It's really rooted in uh, 2 Corinthians 8, uh, verse 9, which tells us, uh, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty um, you might become rich. And so that's our—that's really our motivation for 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 being uh, a generous people. And and next week, uh, as Jay has already sort of mentioned, he's going to come up and kind of uh, recap what's happened with the missional move and the way that you guys have contributed to that. The vision that we have for that, the vision for um, uh, just just spreading the, the freedom and joy that is found in Jesus to the people of Norman and, and, and the rest of the world, right? So he's going to come and, and share some of that. He mentioned the pledge cards, and, uh, you know, Covenant members, you should have got a mem- uh, an email about that this week, and there's going to be more details about that um, next week with, with the pledges and basically asking uh, you guys to contribute to, to helping us um, take down the, the remainder of the debt. And so... Um, but what I'm going to talk about this morning is sort of the kind of the flip side to what Jeremy talked about. He, he has the motivations of why we, we give, and, and I'm going to take the other side of the coin and, and what I think the reasons that we don't give and the reasons we're not a generous people. And really, it's just, it's really just to me, it's the one reason, right? So we're seeking to sort of answer the question, why aren't we more generous or, or why do we have such a problem giving away our money and our possessions? And so we're going to, we're going to work through that. Uh, we're going to work through um, uh, Luke 18, uh, verses 8 through 27. And so um, before we even kick that off this morning, I'm going to have my wife come up here um, and read this text with us. So the, the Bibles will be around, and there will be verses on the screen as well. But uh, Aaron, if you want to come up and just um, going to read this text for us, and then we're going to we'll work through that um, this morning. Okay, Luke 18, verse
1: 18 through 27. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with men is imp- is possible with God.
0: Thank you. Um, pray with me. Uh, Jesus, we... Um you know as we as we seek to talk about generosity this morning um, we're grateful for your word uh, we're grateful for the truth and the promises that you um, show us in your word and um, I just ask father that as we work through um, this text that your spirit will open our hearts and minds to um, to what you have uh, for us this morning through this text and through um, through me up here I just I ask father that um, uh, this is not me here this is not me speaking this is not You know some great idea I had, but God, this is this is truth of the Scripture, um, and that the Spirit will apply that to the hearts of the people here. Um, And through that, through that, we will become a people that look more and more like Jesus. Uh, It's in your name, we pray. Amen. So, not trying to sound uh, like uh, boastful or prideful or anything, but I'm I'm pretty excited about this message this morning, and it's weird to actually say that because the content is is in a lot of ways it's kind of heavy. Um, and so I'm about to go through that, but I, but I, I just, I feel this eagerness and this anticipation, uh, for this morning. And I think the reason for that is like, I've had this message, um, inside of my head and my heart for a while now. Um, like this passage that we're going through with the rich young ruler came up in my normal Bible reading a couple months ago. And I, it's really, it struck me in a new way, uh, like the, the word uh, tends to do. And so I've, I feel like, uh, actually for the past couple months, I've, I've been like Jonah, like, doing everything I can to maybe not, like, I, mean, I don't have time to to prep. My, my schedule, like, doesn't really allow me to be up here that much. Like, I'm too busy to to prep. We, you know, kids have soccer games. I had all these excuses to not to not stand up here. But as we started to plan and think through this more, I, I really had this conviction that, you know, I, I got to make this work. I got to figure out how to be up here. Um, because I really feel like God has a message for us this morning. And so, that's where I'm coming from. And that's my heart, and this, as I stand up here, um, I feel like, I I feel like this a lot, but I'm, 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 this is a sermon that has been preached to me, that has been given to me, um, that I I have thought about a lot, and so, um, you know, I'm here, um, I'm here to share that, and and I'm in the same boat as everyone else, I'm not up here uh, as someone who has figured it out, but as someone who's processing this as well. So, let's go ahead and get started, starting in uh, Luke 18. And uh, uh, the verses 18 and 19, we read, And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except for God alone. So this text is actually in Matthew and Mark as well. But in Mark 10, uh, the story begins, And Jesus was setting out on his journey. A man ran up and knelt before him and ask him, good teacher, what must I do uh, to inherit eternal life? So both accounts are similar, but the text in Mark has this kind of anticipation of this haste, this, this man's running up to Jesus and kind of in broad daylight, right, and kneels before him. And this is sort of in contrast to, to Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to Jesus uh, at night. Nicodemus is very interested in Jesus' teaching, but doesn't have the boldness to come uh, during the day. So, you know, but the rich young ruler, he comes as Jesus was setting out on his journey is what the text tells us. And so it's probably in the middle of the day. It's probably amidst a crowd of people. He kneels before Jesus, which is a sign of humility and respect. And so you have this idea. This guy is humbly coming to Jesus. Um, he's uh, honestly seeking Jesus' counsel. And he asks he him a really good question, right? He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Um, there's a lot of really important questions in life. I mean, just like, what is my purpose in life? Um, you know, how do I find my passion? What, what should I do for a job? Should, should my work be my passion? How do I find a spouse? Am I supposed to have a spouse? Like, wh- how will I know when I've met my spouse? Or if you're in my house, right, the important question that I get av- every week is, do I need to start Patrick Mahomes or Russell Wilson on my fantasy team, Right. <laughs> This is my uh, wife, and eight-year-old. They have this fantasy team they do together, and so they ask me this all the time, and I never know. I'm just like, I just say something. It's just kind of a flip of a coin, Um, but it's really intriguing to see how Jesus kind of responds, right? So, but he doesn't answer his question first. He answers how he addresses him, right? So he says, why do you call me good? No one is good except for God alone, and so this is, this immediately gets our attention, and I think Jesus is addressing this man this way because uh, this man has maybe a distorted view of goodness, like, I- including the sense that he himself is good, right? We, we learn he's rich in the passage, and so he's probably re- equating like the idea that, hey, I'm wealthy, so God is blessing me, so obviously I'm, I'm good, right? Material blessings in that culture were seen as a... Um, you know, evidence that you're doing the right thing. And we still have that sort of mindset in our culture today, right? Good people get good things, right? That's, you know, we kind of naturally see when we see somebody that doesn't have as much, we, we assume a negative connotation. And, um, but Jesus flips that around right off the bat. He, he essentially is saying, uh, no one is good. Like, um, no one is good except for God alone. That's his, his essentially, I mean, this is a text. This is what he says. And so he, he, um, he's, he's not questioning his own divinity. He's just kind of proving his point. But Jesus is calling into question what this man has defined as good. And he's going to really drive this home uh, later in the passage. But let's see how he answers the question, right? How do I inherit eternal life? In verse 20, he says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Kind of expectedly, Jesus goes to the Ten Commandments, but not all of them, right? He, he lists off uh, the, the back half, uh, exclude, so he lists off, do not commit adultery, the seventh, do not murder, the sixth, do not steal, do not bear false witness, false witness and honor your father and mother. He doesn't list off um, the first four, first four commandments, right? He doesn't list off, do, have no other gods besides me, do not make an idol for yourself, do not misuse the name of the Lord. Uh, Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And he doesn't list off, you you shall not covet. Matthew's text here actually includes love your neighbor as yourself. But Jesus, so it includes that in the Matthew's text, but it doesn't include the greatest commandment, right? You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so the the idea from the list, right, is that Jesus is listing the commands that deal with these external actions, like things that other people can see. Um, but he doesn't list anything to do um, with the with the internal. That, that So why? Why did Jesus not list those things off? Why is he only listing half the Ten Commandments? Why does he not list what we'd consider the greatest commandment, right? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Um, before we answer those questions, let's see how, like, how does the rich young ruler, well, in verse 21, he answers Jesus and he says, all these I have kept from my youth. So we could definitely spend some time uh, questioning whether that was actually true, but I don't think that's the point of the story, and I don't, I don't think that's the point Jesus is trying to make. This is the setup, right? Jesus lists those commandments in such a way because he knows the rich young ruler is going to answer in the affirmative because he's, he's sort of like really playing in this, on this idea of what the rich young ruler considers good, right? So in verse 22... Um, and then he actually responds to his, his question, you know, uh, again, he kind of makes a comment. He said, when he heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. In Mark's account, again, uh, in Mark ten twenty one, it actually, in this part of the passage, it says, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him, and it says the, says the same thing, he gives the same uh, commands. Um, so in Mark's account, you, you almost get this idea, of course, by the, by the language that you, you, you can kind of like see Jesus, you feel Jesus looking at the rich young ruler, right? Like they're, maybe they're walking along or that Jesus has been kind of responding to him, but now he kind of maybe stops and, and looks at him um, and really looks at this rich young ruler. He looks at him with compassion. He looks at him with love. He's not looking at him smugly or arrogantly or jealously, but, but lovingly. And, you know, in that sense, it's almost you get the idea that um, they both seem to know that the answer that, that Jesus gave with listing those commandments and the man's affirmation of those commandments is, is not enough. Like, if the man really thought he had done all these things, why is he coming to Jesus and asking him, like, he's asking him uh, this question, how much, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life, you know? Um, he knows that this goodness maybe is not quite enough in his life. And Jesus is really playing, playing on that. And so Jesus lovingly, truthfully, he goes right after the man's heart. And he says again in verse 22, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. So Jesus, knowing this man's heart, knowing this misunderstood idea of goodness, he firmly attacks that idea and ultimately attacks his idolatry, right? Jesus knows that this man's functional savior is his wealth. And he goes straight for it. It's like he's saying, money is your idol. You haven't even kept the first commandment. So now it becomes clear maybe why Jesus didn't list all the commandments. Jesus knew that the man had placed another god, in this case money, before God, which breaks the first commandment. He knew that the man had made an idol of money, which, make, which breaks the second commandment. And th- he did covet money more than God, which breaks the tenth commandment, right? And he doesn't mention the greatest commandment, maybe, because this man clearly did not love God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and he wanted him to, he kind of sets this up, right? And there's also some things we know about this man. The scripture tells us uh, that he was young, that he was rich, and that he was a ruler. There's a lot that we don't know, actually. We don't know how he became wealthy. We don't know anything about his family or his upbringing. Um, We don't know his ethnicity, I um, mean, we don't know just actually how he, how he you know became a ruler, or if, if that is his profession or if it's just what they call him. You know, we don't know these things. But one thing we do know, we do know that he loved his money more than he loved God and that he idolized his wealth. And I, and I think that's the point the scripture's trying to make. Other stories in scripture, other parables, we see um, an emphasis on something like ethnicity, like Jew, Samaritan, Gentile, or an emphasis on social status. We, we hear stories about children, about women, um, widows and or women of the city, right? Like, um, or a job, like the tax collector or a soldier. Kind of points of emphasis. But this story doesn't really include much of that. But it really emphasizes the idolatry, you know, that all of us struggle with outside of ethnicity, outside of social class, outside of job. This idolatry. And so the idea that that I, I want to really pull out this morning is that, right? I want to stop here in the text and take the take some time to to unpack this idea of idolatry and, and, and idols and how I think it, it, it plays a primary role into what we do, why we do what we do. And, and for example, like why we are not as generous as, as, as we could be. So as you take this time, have you ever taken the time to actually think about what really motivates you? Like why does a particular goal or a particular reward motivate you? What are the markers of success in your life? And, and why do you do the things you do? But even on the flip side... But we also need, we need to ask, why does my sin take the form it does? What I mean is, not everyone sins in the same ways, right? So some of us fail to get forgive, or some of us harbor bitterness. Um, you know, some of us will uh, lie. Some of us will get angry. Some of us will speak harshly. Some of us will gossip. Some of us will, um, you know, some of us are really greedy. Some of us are sexually immoral. Like, there's, there's, so in your life, there's a lot of different things. So in your life, why does the sin take the form it does? Um, David Powelson, um, in, his, in his article, um, Idols of the Heart and Vanity Fair, uh, says this. Motivation is always God-relational. Is it encountered and observed in actual life as an intrinsically binary phenomenon, faith or idolatry? And idolatry is the primary motivation factor for our sinful actions. And so I think answering the questions of our motivation or why we sin the way we do begins, begins with assessing our idols. Now, many of us immediately think, when I say idols, we think of like statues, like something that's made or carved or cast and that someone puts up in a house or uh, puts up in a business or, or even a church or whatever, and they, they, um, they physically worship that particular thing. Um, Or even a person, like an American idol, right? Or uh, someone we looked up to, that person was my idol. Um, Those are physical things, but the biblical definition is much broader. Um, In the Old Testament, we see the the Israelites are definitely guilty of bowing down to physical idols, right? The the golden calf is a good example, right? They make these Asheron poles all the time, and they worship the Baals, like physically uh, worshiping in idols. But they're also accused of internal idolatry. Ezekiel fourteen accuses the elders of Israel of setting up idols in their heart. First Samuel fifteen. In First Samuel fifteen, Samuel say, states that Saul's disobedience was idolatry. Right, it was defined as that. In the New Testament, we see the same thing. In Colossians three five, we see covetousness or greed is idolatry. Right. In Galatians 5, idolatry is, is contrasted with, with the fruits of the Spirit in that same, in that same passage. In Romans 1, uh, starting in verse 21, we see both this internal idolatry, which is, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but we also see external in the same passage. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of God, of a mortal God, uh, for images rever- resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Ro- Romans one twenty five wraps up this passage and shows the result of both. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshipped and served the creature, like the created thing, rather than the creator. So Tim Keller defines an idol this way. An idol is anything more fundamental than God to our happiness, meaning in life, and identity. Idolatry is making a good thing an ultimate thing. Now, culturally, we're not prone to making like our culture now. We're not prone to making carved idols or or statues, unless of course you win the Heisman Trophy and we'll give you we'll give you a statue, right? But we are very prone to making the good things ultimate things, things that are great, like love, like family like material possessions, a talent, a successful career, those become the things that drive all of our decisions. Uh, Tim Keller, again, in his book, uh, Counterfeit God, says this, We think that idols are bad things, but that's almost never the case. The greater the good, the more likely we are to expect that it can satisfy our deepest needs and hopes. Anything can serve as a counterfeit God, especially the very best things in life. So family and children material possessions, successful career, achievement, critical acclaim, um, peer approval, a romantic relationship, um, like our appearance. All of these things uh, can be idols that guide our decision-making. We likely have multiple idols at multiple times in our life that sort of guide our decision-making. But when we start to think, um, if we look to anything, anything, um, uh, anything that we look to uh, more than Christ, uh, for our identity, our acceptance, our joy, our hope, our significance. These really deep things. These are by definition like functional saviors. These are gods in our life and our idols. And, and I think this this discussion is appropriate this morning because money has a ve- is a very significant idol in our culture. It's, it was clearly the idol of the rich young ruler in the passage we just read. Um, and it's continued in today. Uh, Martin Luther on his dis- commentary on... Uh, the first commandment says um, money is the most common idol of our time. Now, that was hundreds of years ago, right? But, but still, even then, Jesus warns us um, many times uh, about money, and just a few, right? Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You cannot serve God and money. Take care and be on guard against all greed. One's life does not consist in abundance of his possessions. That's just five, real quick, um, teachings from Christ about money. However, in spite of all of these teachings, uh, I still, many of us, many of us, my, money is our primary idol. Um, we continue to idolize it. Um, we, there's, there's many reasons for this, right? But money, in, in so many different ways, it, we look to money for happiness, we look to it for security, Her identity, Um, it defines our successes and our failures, it defines our worth and our significance, right? And I realize that that's like, who am I to, I thought about this, who am I to stand up here and to say, look at you in this room, many of you who I don't know and say, yeah, you idolize money. Like, how can I say that? so I say that because, like, well, okay, for as Christians, we, we are encouraged to bring um, others into our lives so we can fight sin together and not alone. You know, and as a, as a result of that, many of us have small groups or fight clubs where we share some of our deepest struggles. We share that we struggle with anger or lust, we share that we struggle with pride, we share that we struggle with anxiety. But I've never been in a group where anybody has said, yeah, I struggle with greed, I'm a greedy person. We're willing to install software on our computer that tracks our websites and sends them to our friends, but we're not willing to to share our bank or credit card statements. We're willing to have weekly meetings with our friends and and community to talk about our prideful hearts and our anger and and our anxieties, Uh, but we don't call anyone before we make a significant purchase or spend a lot of money on something. Last fall, about a year ago at this time, uh, we set up an equipped class to talk through what the Bible um, has to say about money. I, I called it money. That's all I called it. God or gift. No one came. Not a single person came to that class. So me, uh, Taryn and Grace Wagner, and Andrew Fendrick just rode bird scooters around the building, like, like, which was fun, but that's not what we wanted to do. Like We had this heart for this class. I thought people would take it, and, and nobody comes. I cannot remember one time that someone has come up to me and actually said, yes, I'm greedy. Now, that may be because we feel the word greed is, it's it's a really strong word and um, we actually just think greedy people are people who acquire large sums of money by unethical means, right? They run a Ponzi scheme or they fraud us and scam us. Um, You know, and and because of that, a lot of us only think wealthy people are greedy. Only wealthy people can be greedy. Um, But we're just... We're just so blind to this, and this is, this is me, but like the greediness of our hearts is, it was hidden our, by our culture that worships material possessions. No one's going to say, oh, you don't deserve those things. Like the fact that we tend to hang out with people kind of in the same socioeconomic group, we can always point to someone who has more than us. And because of, because of what this greed provides, because of what money provides, right, it provides comfort, it provides power, it provides security and approval, like, you know, do we nobody's willing to kind of to give that up to say, yeah, I'm greedy. And to be honest, this is exactly where I was. I, I've thought the same thing for much of my life. Only very recently after reading this passage and kind of having this, this moment or whatever, I, I would, did that really change in my life? I would have never considered myself greedy, right? I don't I'm not the kind of person that, I don't want new things, I don't need nice things, like, I could wear the same pair of jeans, same three shirts my whole life, same car, same house, same anything, same is good, I like same, right, Um, but then I started to think about this, like, what, like, why is this, why am I being convicted in this way, and I started to realize, like, one of the good things in life for me is being able to provide for my family, I love to be able to provide for them, right, Um, and so I started to dig into those thoughts, and and I was like, well, I, I, apparently I love to be able to provide materially for my family. I want my family to have a bigger and better house. I want my family to have nicer furniture. I want my family to have bitter, bigger and better and more frequent vacations, right? Like an Instagram-worthy vacation, right? Like I want them to have bigger and better experiences. I want to take my kids to sporting events. I want to go to concerts and I want to do all these things. And there was dis- discontentment in my heart from the inability to do that. As a result, I began to confuse needs and wants. I began to think I needed to provide the things that I didn't need to provide. So greed is defined as a selfish want for something beyond one's need, and that is exactly where my heart was. I started to think about how I could save money, how I could maybe not give as much away, so then I could buy these things that I thought my family needed. I thought about other ways to make money. I was like, well, maybe I should start building stuff. Or I even thought about changing careers. I was like, a lot of people have all these careers where they make a lot more money than I do. Maybe I should check one of those out. Um, right? All of this, all of this was rooted in this inordinate desire to provide things for my family. Provide all of these things for my family. But... My idol was the one that was telling me that. My family wasn't telling me that. My wife wasn't telling me that. My kids weren't telling me that. My friends weren't saying, hey, man, you need to pick it up. Your family's suffering. Nobody's saying that. But my idol, my idol was saying that. Again, David Powelson puts it this way. Idols define good and evil in ways contrary to God's definitions. Such false gods create false laws and false definitions of success and failure. Idols promise of blessings and warn of curses for those who succeed or fail against their laws. And so, ultimately, greed is the fruit of serving the counterfeit God of money, just serving this idol, and it's the opposite of Generosity. You know, and so based on the number of teaching in scripture, based on our culture's sort of obsession with it, and based on my, my experience with the lack of, of confession regarding money, I think it's safe to say that we all have some, some money issues. But thinking through those, some of these quest, some questions, like why, why are we not more generous? Or why do, we, why do we have a problem with giving our money and our possessions away? Why do we struggle with these things? I think... I immediately, when I was thinking of this, I went to surface answers, right? Surface answers like debt or poor money management or a, a misunderstanding of biblical, biblical stewardship or a misunderstanding or misapplication of biblical teachings on money. And I, and I think those things are valid. Absolutely. Like, if we spend more money where you have a significant debt, it will hinder our generosity, right? If we don't know where our money is going, we may find ourselves with less and we're not going to be able to be as generous. I think those things are all, all true and we should seek to seek to um, figure out why that is, right? Um, and that's, that's what led me to this, this, this foundational issue, in my opinion, is that we idolize money. So the, the bottom line truth remains that we aren't generous, uh, not because of all of these other things, but because of uh, our, our um, inordinate or just over-the-top love of money and what it provides. So we need to take this on. We need to take on this idol of money. If we want to look more, more, look more like Jesus, to become a generous people, we need to take on this idol of money. This is a counterfeit God. I love that term, counterfeit God that is ruling our life. So what does Jesus tell the rich young ruler? Picking back up in the text, 1822, when Jesus heard this, the answer from the, when he heard the rich young ruler, he says, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Jesus offers the rich young ruler, he he gives him a command, and he offers him a promise. And I think that that's our pattern for fighting fighting idolatry. Then the pattern begins with faith or trust in Jesus and the promises he makes to us, right? Faith is a complete trust or confidence in someone or something. So when fighting our idols, we must start there. We have to ask ourselves do I trust Jesus or do I trust this idol? As Romans 1.25, have I exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature, like the created thing, rather than the creator himself? Romans 6 gives us some insight into this. It says, Romans 6, starting in verse 21, says, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you were now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and become a slave to God, The fruit you get leads to sanctification and to its end, eternal life. This passage shows us that the fruit in our life can help us determine our idols. The fruits from God are the fruits of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. But the fruits from serving our idols are things like greed, sexual immorality, anger, slander, envy, jealousy, anxiety, discontentment, and the list goes on, right? So what I think is helpful for us is to take a look at our lives and we work our way back from these negative fruits to the root, right? So we can discover our idols and fight them with the truths of the gospel. One framework I've really felt that is helpful for me in doing that is the idea that faith and trust and motivation are deeply linked together, Right? In this framework, we seek to answer the question, why do I do what I do, but looking first at the fruits of our life and then working backwards um, to to uncover um, where we are trusting some idol instead of Jesus. I mentioned this quote already once, uh, but again, David Powelson, he said, again, motivation is always God relational. It is encountered and observed in actual life as an intrinsically binary phenomenon, faith or idolatry, nothing in between. Idolatry is the primary motivating factor for our sinful action. He goes on. He says, The biblical theme of idolatry provides a penetrating tool for understanding both the springs of and inducements for our sinful behaviors. So if we look at the fruit of our lives, in this case greed or a lack of generosity, and we work our way down um, to our idols... Right, and, and a lot of times, this, we want to stop in money, in sex, work, family, whatever these idols are in our lives. But the, the, the reality is that these actually probably serve deeper idols in our lives. Um, Tim Keller distinguishes them, uh, surface idols, from, from deep idols. And he breaks down uh, the deep idols into four categories. Four categories, right? Comfort, approval, control in power. These are the idols of the heart. This is a, this for me has been a very, very helpful framework to thinking through this stuff. Um, So for those whose idol of the heart is comfort, right? Those people are, um, I'm going to talk through these these four kind of uh, idols of the heart uh, real quick to give us Like It's just a framework. It's a lens to help us see in a way to uncover and unpack maybe these areas of idolatry in our lives. Again, so those who idol the hardest comfort are motivated to seek privacy, a lack of stress, and freedom to do what they want above all other things. They will seek to avoid boredom and see the demands of life as getting in the way of what they really want. So regarding money, these people will spend a lot of money on expensive things for themselves, including clothes or vacations and cars and and things like that. Um, And and a lot of times these purchases are sort of made in contrast with reality, right? They'll put the, so they end up in debt and we would categorize a lot of these people as spenders. Those whose idol of the heart is power um, are motivated to seek success, winning, and having an influence as the most important things. Uh, these people will avoid humiliation at all costs and do not like to show weakness. And anger is a major problem um, for these people, and they will use that anger to sort of get what they want. Regarding money, these people will use it to get a specific action or to exercise influence. For someone, for example, someone will give a lot of money to the church, but they'll expect the church leadership to kind of do what they want or kind of bend to their will. Also, these people have this... Um, um, arrogant, um, self-centered view of their sort of responsibility. They'll give to the church, but only because, like, they think if they don't, no one else will. You know, well, I'm going to make this happen. God needs me to do this, so I'm going I'm to give. It's this this really distorted view of responsibility, right? So those are, that's what someone who has idle the heart uh, of power. Those who've idle the heart as control are motivated to... Uh, avoid uncertainty and view a lack of self-discipline like a self, somebody who doesn't have much self-discipline. Now, they, they look at those people with disdain. They look down on those people. These people, um, whose idol of the heart again is uh, control, will seek to remove anything that threatens to derail their plans. These people struggle with worry. They worry that they've made the wrong decision. They worry that everything's not going to work out. They worry that the plans they made will, will never happen. And these people tend to strongly regulate their generosity and will not deviate from whatever set plan they had, even if there's a very good reason to do so, right? If it's not in the budget, it's not happening, right? These people tend to be savers, and they use their bank account or investment account or whatever as a, as a means to kind of fight off their worries. And lastly, those whose idol of the heart is approval are, are motivated by affirmation and relationships. They will seek to avoid rejection at all costs, and will continue. sometimes continue pursuing relationships long past that, sh- you know, the ship has sailed, but yet they're, they're still out there swimming after it, right? Um, this leads to others in their lives feeling smothered by them, and it can also lead towards an unhealthy dependence on other. Regarding generosity and spending, these people may look like those whose idol is comfort. They will buy certain clothes, need to live in certain neighborhoods, and need to drive a certain car, but they're not motivated by the comfort those things provide. Instead, they are motivated by the approval these things afford for them. They will set their sights on a certain goal or a certain group of people, a certain standard of living, and they will do everything they have to do to obtain that. And so... That was a really fast overview on that, but those, that framework has been really helpful for me, right? So once we know these root idols, then we can repent of them. It's not a vague repentance. Like we can repent specifically of these things and fight them with the truths that the gospel provided for us, and we, we can follow Jesus. So the pattern would work like this. We follow the fruits of idolatry down to the root idol of the heart through questions, through fight club, through um, really taking the time to, to, to ask the, the really hard questions of ourselves to uncover those things. And then we repent, and we turn, and we follow Jesus. I'm going to use the truths of the gospel then to cultivate the fruits of the Spirit. And this is essentially what Jesus tells the rich young ruler in verse 22. He says, Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and come and follow me. In other words, destroy your idolatrous attitude towards money by trusting in me, um, in my promises. Now, the order that this happens, like we have to remember it, right? We have to remember that the order this happens. We don't become a generous people so that God will love us. We don't use generosity to purchase salvation for us. Our generosity flows out of our salvation. It flows out of the free gift that God has given us. The truths of the gospel are what we use to fight the idols of the heart. And ultimately, the rich young ruler, we see it in verse 23, he did not trust Jesus and his promises more. It says, But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he's extremely rich. Which Jesus takes note of, right? He says, Jesus, seeing that he becomes sad, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard heard it said, Who can be saved? Right? They said that because of this distorted idea of goodness. Like, I have a lot, if you have a lot of money, you're automatically good. Like, they were confused. They were like, well, how can I be saved then? If a rich person can't get into heaven, how can I? Says, but Jesus said, what is impossible with man is, is possible with God. Defeating our idols is impossible without God intervening into our lives. But this is not a one-time intervention. This is not a, hey, I received the gospel, and so now I have to figure it on out after that. We don't, we don't get to move past the idea of what God has done for us. The gospel is real and true every day, and we need to hear it every day. Uh, Jeff Vanderstelt, in his book, Gospel Fluency, says this, We are not saved just once in the past. We continue being saved in the present. God's salvation didn't just happen to us, it is also continuing to happen. He is actively saving us. The gospel is good news for our sanctification, the ongoing work of God saving us and conforming us daily into the image of Christ. Our activity in this process is ongoing repentance from unbelief and belief into the gospel. So for those, we struggle with approval. We remember Jesus freely gave himself so that we could be accepted and adopted into God's family. Those who struggle with power, Jesus freely gave himself, defeating sin and death. We already have victory. We will not be defeated, and we will not be humiliated. Those with struggling with comfort, Jesus freely gave himself so that we could have freedom from the effects of sin, right? His yoke is easy, and his burden is light. Those struggling with control, Jesus freely gave up himself so that we can be ruled by a good king that cares for us and takes that, that cares for us and, and gives us good gifts, right? These are just some examples of the gospel and those, those idols of the heart. And so, you know, I, I, this morning I'm saying that we struggle with generosity because we serve idols and, and not God. And, and the way that we fight these is, is with the gospel. The more we understand the gospel, the less influence these idols will have on us. And the more, influ- the more we understand the gospel, the more generous um, we'll become. And so, become a generous people, I could say, get out of debt. I could say, you know, you need to follow your budget. You need to set a budget. And I think that those things do flow. And I think that those things are helpful tools. But ultimately, ultimately, the reasons that, I mean, if you want to go way down, the reasons that we sin is because there are things that we don't believe, that that we don't trust that Jesus, Jesus tells the rich young ruler, you will have treasure in heaven. He doesn't believe him. And so we struggle with generosity because we don't believe the truths of the gospel. And so this morning, um, you know, I, I started this sermon to really think, I, I mean, I'm a, I'm a practical guy, right? I want to be able to say, if you want to sit down and make a budget, let's do it. Let's make a plan to get you out of debt. And to be honest, those should happen. But first, we have to know what we are repenting of. We have to know, why am I not generous? Like, we have to know those things, and, and, and I'm hoping that this framework, this framework with the idols of the heart, right, with power, comfort, approval, control, like, we can take those, we can use the gospel, and we can repent, and that will make us look more like Jesus. That will make us a more generous people. So pray with me. Jesus, we thank you for the, um, the truth of your word. Uh, we thank you that um, we're not here alone, and that we know with man, uh, these things, fighting these idols, these things are impossible, but with God, uh, with you, uh, they are possible. And that's where we find ourselves this morning. Um, as we sit and we think, do I struggle? Like, am I doing that because I want control of my life? And am I doing that because I want power? Do I want approval? Uh, do I want comfort? What are these things that are really my, my, my driving motivations, these core motivations in my life? Like, how do I take your truths of your word and the promises of Jesus and take that and push it out and repent and apply those truths, uh, your truth, um, to that? And so, Jesus, I pray that, um, you know, as we, as we take the time uh, in just a few minutes to take communion, that we will see um, the ultimate sacrifice in um, the ultimate god that you are it to serve that you answer all these questions that you provide the things we need um, that your truth and your promises are good um, and jesus ultimately you are better and so as we we take the time and consider why we're not generous people that we will land on you because you were so generous um, and as we begin to look more like you god, we will become we will become that we will become more um, more generous people